Welcome to Zocalo, a cultural forum for the new L.A. Zocalo, which means public square in Spanish, is a nonpartisan, multi-ethnic forum providing an opportunity for intellectual fellowship in Southern California. Tonight on Zocalo, What's Wrong with Liberalism? A talk by political writer and editor Michael Tomaski, recorded before a live audience at the National Center for the Preservation of Democracy as part of the Zocalo Public Square Lecture Series. Tomaski has edited The American Prospect, the respected liberal opinion magazine, since 2003. Prior to that, he was a political columnist for New York Magazine, The Village Voice, and The New York Observer. He is also the author of two books, Left for Dead, on the intellectual collapse of the American left since the 1960s, and Hillary's Turn, about the 2000 New York Senate race. He has contributed to numerous journals and books as well. Last May, Michael Tomaski published an essay in The American Prospect that set Washington on its ear. The essay, Party in Search of a Notion, was Tomaski's call for the Democrats to rise above the politics of interest group particularism and become the party of the common good. The influential essay got front-page treatment in the New York Times and is one of the most widely quoted magazine essays of the past decade. In this lively talk, Tomaski discusses his ideas, his critics, and the new historical opportunity for progressive politics. Thank you very much. Thanks, Marcos. Thanks to Zocalo for asking me to be a part of this great series. I spent some time looking around on the website, and it's a really impressive list of people and a very impressive venue for only five years. I want to thank Teresa Lara for uh, helping make my arrangements and making travel easy on me. And I want to thank Gregory Rodriguez in absentia. Gregory's not here tonight. He's following the mayor on uh, what has been described to me by my sources as his honors uh, get me the hell out of California so that I don't have to campaign with Phil Angelides tour. Isn't that what they're calling it? I should begin, perhaps inauspiciously, with an apology in advance. I give a lot of talks. I'm always asked to give talks and to be on panels. And when they want you to give a talk, they want you to talk for about 15 minutes. And those I can do extemporaneously, because 15 minutes, you know, you can talk about anything for 15 minutes. Gregory told me 40 minutes. decided to write it out, which is something I don't usually do. This is more of a speech than a talk. I decided it deserved the dignity of being written out word for word. And uh, I went online and I looked at Google and saw that you should count on saying about 150 words per minute. So I did the math and I wrote out, I I did, I did. I wrote out 6,000 words and I started practicing it in my hotel room this afternoon. And about 20 minutes into it, I saw that it was going to turn into one of these Fidel (laughs) Castro-like endurance tests. So, you know, I spent the afternoon frantically like tearing pages out and making lines through things. So... If this lacks a certain coherence, I apologize in advance to you. So, we're here to discuss what's wrong with liberalism. That's the title of this talk. If there are any conservatives in the audience, I know what you're thinking. (laughs) Well, I hope you've booked the hall until midnight, because you certainly have a lot to talk about. And, you know, there are problems, certainly, and we'll get to those. But I actually want to start out by talking about some of the things that are right with liberalism. Uh, because I am, after all, a liberal, and I don't mind saying the word. In Washington, by the way, they tell us not to say the word, the, the preferred word, and it's probably traveled out here, too. The preferred word is progressive. And the pollsters will tell you, and I actually sat in a meeting 
In early 2004, I think, with a group of, uh, I suppose, Washington insiders, I guess I was one, um, in which the pollster instructed us with his PowerPoint presentation all the reasons why you should say progressive instead of liberal. But I sat through the presentation, and I just decided to ditch it. I mean, I write all these things where I'm telling Democrats that they should not listen to their pollsters as slavishly as they do, so I figured I shouldn't listen, listen to their pollsters. It would be hypocritical of me to do so. And not massively hypocritical, not, say, like calling yourselves the party of family values while covering up the habits of a sexual predator in the halls of Congress. <laughs> That's a little bit more hypocritical, but still, I want to just be true to uh, who I am. I'm a little old-fashioned, so here I am, your house liberal for the evening. And I don't mind because I think the liberal tradition is actually a great one that has done far, far more good for the country than bad. And yes, there have been problems over the last 30 or 35 years, and we'll talk a little bit about those. But, but I believe very strongly that if you look back over the long course of American history, and indeed world history, that the liberal impulse has led to many changes for the better that virtually everyone now accepts as good. And if someone asks me, why are you liberal, Tomaski, that's basically what I say, that liberals have been right the vast majority of the time. I go way back. In 1776, the conservatives, literally the Tories, right, wanted the colonies to stay with the crown, and it was the liberals of the day. And They're not necessarily liberal in every regard by our standards today, but they were the liberals of the day who saw the possibility of a republic without monarchy where people had legal rights and could worship as they chose. In the 1860s, conservatives in the South and to some extent in the North, supported slavery. It took decades of work by liberals, and in that case, radicals, to abolish the practice. And the eight-hour workday, and women's suffrage, and later women's equality, and civil rights, and believing that we have a duty to protect the planet that we live on. The list goes on, and I think it's a great list. At the same time, liberalism, once upon a time, expressed a profound vision of America's role in the world. The powerful idea that there is such a thing as a world community is a liberal ideal, dating back to the years immediately following World War II. Now, liberal leaders and democratic leaders did not, of course, always live up to that ideal in Vietnam, in Chile, and a host of other places. Well, this is the way the world goes, but liberalism at least gave us these ideals. History is the never-ending process of trying to live up to them, which is what we still try to do. So I think there's quite a lot to be proud of in the liberal tradition. But as you can see from my greatest hits package, it's sort of like the Rolling Stones. Not a whole lot to brag about since the 1970s. <laughs> there have been a few successes, and, uh, you know, after all, the Stones have released three or four pretty good albums. I still say the word album like I still say the word liberal. The progress on equality for gay men and lesbians has been dramatic and quite moving. That's happened since the 70s. Americans' attitudes on racial questions have changed in great ways that would have been unimaginable 30 years ago, and there's still work to be done on this, but the percentage of white Americans who say today that they'd happily live next door to an African-American family or have an African-American boss at work, these kinds of things have changed incredibly in the last 30 years. And it's liberalism, and specifically in the case of race, it's been affirmative action, which has brought about racial and ethnic mixing in this country in ways that were impossible before it that led to these changes. But it hasn't all been good in the last few years, and I have my theory about why, and that's what I'm here to talk about tonight. So I was asked here mainly, as Marcos said, 
because I wrote an essay in the magazine I edit, uh, The American Prospect, that got a lot of attention when it was published in May. And it was written up in the New York Times. And um, you know, if you want to make your mother proud, do something that gets you written up in the New York Times. Something good, I mean. My essay was called Party in Search of a Notion. And before I describe what the essay was about, I want to talk a little bit about how I came to write it and what I thought about uh, uh, as I prepared to, to write this piece. And it stemmed from a lot of meetings that I went to in late 2004 after the presidential election, meetings of liberals around Washington trying to figure out what had happened. Of course, these were very... These were like shrink sessions or something. These were very morose affairs, and everybody was very depressed and devastated, and people would look at each other and say, well, why, why did this happen? Why did Kerry lose? You know, was it values? Was it national security? Was it terrorism? Was it this? Was it that? What happened? And these conversations would go on and on, but then finally at some point, somebody would invariably say, and they'd always say it like this. They'd sort of look down at the table in front of them, and they'd shake their head in resignation the way people do, and they'd sigh deeply, and they'd say, you know, at the end of the day, I just think people don't know what we're for anymore. And whenever someone said that, everyone would nod in agreement, and that would be kind of the end of the conversation and the end of the meeting, because what could be said after that? So this is basically what I started thinking about. Why is this so? You're listening to Michael Tomaski, editor of the American Prospect magazine. This is Zocalo. This fall, mark your calendar for thought-provoking events as Zocalo Public Square Lecture Series presents fascinating talks by global thinkers. For information on upcoming events and to download past radio programs, go to ZocaloLA.org. That's Z-O-C-A-L-O-L-A dot O-R-G. We return now to What's Wrong with Liberalism with Michael Tomaski. Now, I should say it's not entirely true that liberals and Democrats don't stand for anything. We stand for a lot of things. We stand for you know, universal health care and energy independence and low-cost prescription drugs and more rights for labor and, and all sorts of things. But that's it. They're things. They're a laundry list of particular policy prescriptions. That's kind of how Democratic candidates come across, and that is, I think, a lot of people's impression of where liberalism is today. And it is there today, I think, for a particular set of reasons. And the reasons have to do with the way the Democratic Party and the liberal infrastructure, if I can use the phrase, were set up and organized in the wake of the 1960s and and into the 1970s. What you have in Washington, and if you talk to any Democratic politician she or he will tell you that they run this merciless gauntlet and they don't like doing it. You have a lot of single-issue advocacy groups, and they have their positions on issues, and Democrats are expected to uphold these positions and fill out their questionnaires and follow what these groups say. And this is a process that plays itself out in every election, for president certainly, and for Senate and House as well. And it's a process that's also upheld I think, to a considerable extent, by Democratic political professionals who reinforce this scheme because they tell candidates, and they're another problem, 
they tell candidates, look, you know, our polling shows that the people are with you on the environment and they're with you on education and they're with you on this and that and they're even with you on abortion rights where sizable majorities support that right. Uh, so just stick to the issues and, and you'll be fine. That's what Al Gore was told. That's what John Kerry was told. But something happened. They stuck to those issues and they weren't fine. They lost elections. They sounded passionless. They sounded like they were just saying what various interest groups wanted them to say on abortion or immigration or what have you. And they didn't sound like they were saying, to me, they didn't sound like they were saying what they actually believed. And most importantly, they didn't sound like they were trying to tap into anything deeper in the American experience and to enlist people in a project of politics that was bigger than themselves. They were mouthing this sentence and that cliche to keep this or that group happy, but they didn't sound like they had a central organizing idea about America. And we can say that, I mean, I personally don't think conservatism and the Republican Party are very good for this country, but they have a couple of central organizing ideas. I may not like them, but they do have them. So back to liberals and Democrats, I began to think, well, why is this so? And there are a few obvious reasons that we all know about and that we've talked about quite a lot. And, you know, I think very clearly, you look back to 1980 when the Reagan revolution happened and, you know, liberal was made a dirty word. Democrats were afraid of their philosophy. They became afraid of their core beliefs. They became afraid to say what they really stood for and really believed. That we know, and that's, that's been a big problem, and it's sometimes manifests itself in very sadly comic ways. When uh, I don't know if some of you saw a debate in late 2003, all the Democratic presidential candidates before the field had winnowed, and a reporter for the New York Times asked them all, are you a liberal? Are you a liberal? Sort of badgering them, and they, they, they wouldn't say yes, which I kind of understand, but they, wouldn't, they didn't even have the gumption to say, you know, what, what an idiotic question. How dare you waste people's time with such a question? They just ran, and they cowered, and they didn't know what to do. So that's one problem, but I think, I think there's another reason that's intrinsic to liberalism, to this kind of interest group liberalism of the last 30 years that I described a moment ago. And this is what I want to talk about, and this is what was at the heart of my critique in my essay. If you ask most self-identified liberals why they're liberal, I think most people will say something like, well, I believe in social justice, I believe in economic equality, I believe in opportunity for all. I know that's what most people will say. And I, we even had the funny experience once at the Prospect. On our website, we had a contest uh, about two years ago. The contest was called come up with the elevator pitch for liberalism. I don't know if all of you know what an elevator pitch is, but it, everybody in Washington knows what that word phrase means. Because Washington is full of people who are always trying to get rich people to invest in their projects. And so an elevator pitch is this. You find yourself in an elevator with some rich liberal who's known to sprinkle money around, like George Soros or maybe Norman Lear. And you have just a few seconds, the amount of time it takes the elevator to go up, right? To tell them why they should write you a check. So what do you say? So we tried to do this with liberalism, and we tried in no small part because we felt like we needed the help ourselves. And we got hundreds of responses, but we felt a little let down as we read through them because they all kind of sounded like they could have been written 30 years ago. Now, don't get me wrong, social justice and economic equality and opportunity for all are good things. I'm for them. I work for them in the work I do every day. But Think about this. I mean, break them down, even, if you will, as articles of speech. 
their goals or ends, and they kind of assume that everyone shares our assumptions about why they're good ideas. They're self-evident to liberals, but liberals are only 18 or 20 percent of the population, and like it or not, you have to get 51 percent to agree with you. Well, most of the time you have to get 51 percent. There are apparently exceptions. But those are goals, and they don't, I'll use the phrase again, they don't enlist people in a project, and politics is a project, it's a process, it's something that you want to engage people in. You need to give people a vision of society and explain why it's good, why it's good for everybody, why it's good for the country as a whole, and good, and this is an important point, good even for the people who don't benefit directly from the programs that we are espousing. And this is a crucial point, because I don't think that liberalism is at heart about social justice or economic equality or opportunity for all. I think it's about something else, and let me start to answer what I think it's about by posing another question. It's kind of a personal question, which is this. What makes a person a liberal? In other words, how does a person, through his or her life experience, become a liberal and end up believing in those things that we call liberalism? Because after all, that's kind of a hard journey, isn't it? I mean, it's kind of different from conservatism in some respects. I mean, a wealthy businessman is conservative. Why? Because the conservatives in power are going to cut his taxes, and he likes to have his taxes cut. And a gun owner is conservative because conservatives will protect his right to own guns, and he likes to own guns. It's pretty straightforward. The common thread that unites the businessman and the gun owner is what? Self-interest. Conservatives in power, Republicans, will look after the self-interest of the wealthy businessman and the gun owner. But with liberals, in many cases, not all cases, but many cases, it's a little different. Liberals are liberals because they see beyond their own self-interest. I, for example. Well, thank you. Yes, that's, that's an applause line after a fashion. But, but that, yes. But that's... That's what we're about. I make a reasonable amount of money, not a lot, goodness knows, but you know enough that Bush's tax cuts benefited me a little. But of course, I'm dead set against them because I think they're bad for society, now, far more impressively than my opposition to tax cuts because a lot of people put their lives on the line for their beliefs. For example, the white northerners who went south in the early 1960s, they, they had no personal interest in seeing that African Americans had the vote. They, they had the vote themselves. It didn't affect them in the slightest. Michael Schorner and Andrew Goodman, they didn't, you know, they had all the rights and most of the privileges that any American had. So why did they go down to Mississippi and work with James Cheney? Because they saw that the issues that black people faced in the South did affect them. It affected them as thinking Americans who loved their country, and it affected, as they rightly saw it, the nation as a whole. So that, to me, is what's at the heart of liberalism. And that, therefore, is my definition of liberalism. Liberalism is the idea that citizens should be called upon to look beyond their own self-interest and work for a greater common interest. That's what it is. And any liberal is a liberal because she or he, through reading or experience or both, came to believe in this principle. In my essay, I call it the common good. I didn't invent the phrase, but, you know, it's a pretty good one. And it's what all of us believe, and incidentally, it's how, it's the only way 
if you look through history, that big liberal victories are achieved. You're listening to Michael Tomaski, editor of the American Prospect magazine. This is Zocalo, a cultural forum for the new L.A. On Wednesday, November 8th at 7 p.m., Zocalo Public Square Lecture Series presents How Revolutions in Military Affairs Have Shaped History, a talk by L.A. Times columnist Max Boot. Boot offers a new intellectual framework for understanding contemporary geopolitics. This event at the National Center for the Preservation of Democracy is free, but reservations are required. Visit our website to reserve your seats and to download past radio programs. Go to ZocaloLA.org. That's Z-O-C-A-L-O-L-A dot O-R-G. In a moment, we return to What's Wrong with Liberalism with Michael Tomaski. Stay tuned to Zocalo. Hi, my name is Peter West, and I live in Santa Ana in Orange County. Orange County is, has a certain political bias. There are issues that are really presented in a rather one-sided perspective in the local newspaper, and I love the fact that I get a different perspective and a more balanced perspective from listening to KPCC. KPCC helps me get both sides of every issue, and uh, it's up to each of us to make up our mind, but we have to have both sides to be able to do that. It's absolutely one of the reasons why I renew every year and will continue to renew because I have to have that information to play my role in this democracy. My name is Peter West, and I've been a KPCC member for 10 years now, and I'd love all my fellow residents of Orange County to call 866-888-5722 and join now. I'm Carl Castle. KPCC provides an important news service here for you 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. But it depends on listeners like you to help pay for this service. Please pledge your support to ensure that 89.3 KPCC keeps coming your way. You can make your contribution online at kpcc.org or call 866-888-5722. Welcome back to Zocalo, a cultural forum for the new L.A. We now return to What's Wrong with Liberalism, a talk by Michael Tomaski, editor of the American Prospect magazine. On a personal note, I remember my moment of epiphany very clearly. It was early 1981, and Ronald Reagan had just taken office. And I was toying, I confess at the time, with some conservative notions, not because I really believed them, because I didn't, but uh, because I was engaging in that time-honored sport of 20-year-old men everywhere. I wanted to get under the skin of my father. (laughs) So Reagan had just fired the air traffic controllers, and Dad and I were in the car, our Ford Granada, driving somewhere. I said, I cringe to confess this, but here it goes, I said something about the strike being illegal. Now, that was Reagan's line at the time, then being aped on television by such TV loudmouths as existed in that distant age. And my dad said, Michael, he thundered, and he could thunder. He's much louder than me. All strikes are illegal. That's part of the point. Hmm. Yeah, it hadn't occurred to me that maybe there was more to the story than they were letting on on television. That had overstated the case a bit, I think. All strikes aren't illegal. But in doing so, he'd asked me to think, and his request led me to consider things in a light I hadn't before. 
about the PATCO workers, yes. That was the union that was busted. But also about history and money and power and about the mine workers so central to the place where I grew up and so central to my dad's life. He was a UMW shop steward before he got his law degree. More broadly, about the precept that real thought and engagement on my part required looking beyond first assumptions, examining a problem from points of view other than my own, and considering any action's impact on the whole of society. And this, folks, is the only justification that leaders can make to citizens for liberal governance, really, that all are being asked to contribute to a project larger than themselves. And crucially, and this is a very important point, Leaders must be able to make those citizens see clearly how they themselves benefit from being a part of this larger project. Success of liberalism hinges on these two things. This was crucial, I believe, to the period of liberal ascendancy, what we normally call the period of liberal ascendancy, which I would mark from 1933 when the New Deal was formed through about mid-1966 when the social disruption and so forth, Vietnam to some extent, although Vietnam wasn't a widely unpopular war quite yet, but when those things began to fray at the fabric of the great society. This was a period of ascendancy. It wasn't a period of ascendancy for everyone. It took some of the changes of the 1960s to expand that liberalism, and those changes were very much for the better. And some of what happened then was quite painful, but it had to happen, and it happened for very good and historically necessary reasons. But that period still you know, shines in the memories of a lot of people who call themselves liberal, um, because it was the period when this bargain was clear to people, this bargain offered by democratic leaders, that we, the government, will do these things in your name, and that you will benefit because the country will be better. And I found many examples of this kind of, this kind of thinking and this kind of rhetoric uh, as I was researching the essay that I wrote. And uh, the one that was the most powerful to me was uh, Lyndon Johnson, actually, when he was president in 1964, uh, when he was preparing to sign the Civil Rights Bill. He went on television the night before, and his first two sentences were these. I'm about to sign into law the Civil Rights Act of 1964. I want to take this occasion to talk to you about what the law means to every American. See, he didn't say black people. He didn't say southerners. He didn't even say our nation. He said every American. The words gave citizens agency and a stake. It involved them in a project. Gave them a stake in seeing that this unprecedented social experiment would succeed. I can see that I'm bumping up against my time limit. So I'll try to race through my remaining pages with responsible brevity. But this is the element that I think liberal politics is missing today. I think that partly because of the growth, and I don't want to blame these groups wholly, and I know I keep returning to it, but I think you know, I, all these groups stand for very good things. They represent very good things. You know, who can argue with trying to protect the environment uh, or protect the rights of immigrants and so on and so forth? but it has caused a kind of stratification and a kind of fragmentation in the liberal coalition that does liberalism a disservice in the long run and does each of those individual causes a disservice in the long run. 
because I think history shows us that liberalism succeeds when people are united above and beyond those differences and those distinct causes into a larger common project that involves everyone and to which everyone is asked to make a contribution and from which everyone benefits. And I think that's a type of rhetoric and thinking that's missing. It's certainly missing from the Democratic Party today. And, and I think it's missing from liberalism, too. You're listening to Michael Tomaski, editor of the American Prospect magazine. This is Zocalo. This fall, mark your calendar for thought-provoking events as Zocalo Public Square Lecture Series presents fascinating talks by global thinkers, including science writer Margaret Wertheim and military historian Max Boot. For information on upcoming events and to download past radio programs, go to ZocaloLA.org. That's Z-O-C-A-L-O-L-A dot O-R-G. We return now to What's Wrong with Liberalism with Michael Tomaski. So what I advocate and what I hope to see uh, for the future is a return to centrality of this idea, this idea that liberalism is about asking people to contribute to a larger project. Now, I want to talk a little bit before we go to questions about some of the reaction that I've gotten to my ideas and to this essay and you know, be my own devil's advocate for a couple moments. Uh, because a lot of people, I heard from a lot of politicians, I heard from a lot of political professionals, I heard from a lot of people in the advocacy world, in the very advocacy world that I am you know, nominally criticizing, who said to me, yes, this is absolutely right, thank you. you, know, and, you know, I've been waiting for somebody to say this, or I've been saying things like this myself. Uh, a lot of politicians, of course, said to me, I've been saying this for years. <laughs> and some of them have. I mean, I think Barack Obama... I think his thinking and rhetoric are informed by this kind of sensibility, and I think that's, even though people might not articulate it to themselves exactly this way, I think that's kind of what's made him such a superstar. I think that, I think that people understand that he's calling people to something bigger and higher. But other people said, well, this is, this is impossible. This really can't be done anymore. We tried this once, and we've been discredited. The liberal project has been discredited. We can't ask people to sacrifice. They don't trust us anymore. They don't trust government. They don't trust liberals, you know, and they're not going to trust us after Vietnam, after Watergate, after liberalism being made a dirty word. They're not going to trust us to do this kind of work anymore. Well, I suppose they could be right. I've been wrong a lot of times in my life, and I could well be wrong about this. And, you know, they, particularly the politicians that I spoke to about this, they're out in the world doing something that I don't have to do, which is get votes. And I have a lot of respect for that process. That's a hard thing to do, getting votes, particularly in large states with large rural populations and so on and so forth. So maybe they have their finger on something that I don't have my finger on. On the other hand, maybe I have my finger on something that they don't have their finger on, which is this. I think that we're in now, potentially at least, a new and interesting and very exciting historical moment. Something perhaps like 1932 when the New Deal came together or something like maybe 1964 when the Civil Rights Revolution ushered in a new era or like, except in reverse, 1980 when the conservatives stormed the gates. And the reason that I think we might be at a new historical moment 
is this. Think about this. Now, for the first time since the rise of modern conservatism, whether you want to date it to Reagan or whether you want to date it back further to the late 1950s or to Goldwater in 1964, for the first time now, regular Americans, not just me, not just liberals, regular Americans, the kind of people who didn't you know, pay more attention to football and politics and only think about it for about four weeks every four years, Regular Americans have seen that conservatism has failed them, right? It's failed them in a lot of ways at home. It's failed them in Iraq. It's failed them now in North Korea. And it's just failed them in a lot of ways in a lot of places. And they know it. And it's not just the 18 or 20% of liberals, self-identified liberals who know it. Americans know it. That's a philosophical failure. It's not a tactical failure. They don't fail tactically. They're really good tactically on that side, and they still might eke out some victories in this election because they're so good tactically. But where they have failed is philosophically. And so that's exactly the point where they need to be attacked, and that's exactly the point where liberals and Democrats need to be willing to say some things that they haven't been willing to say in a generation or two. I really think this can happen. You know, someone said to me, well, you know, it sounds good, but people don't really you know, respond to that kind of big call for a large project uh, except in times of depression and war. And I thought, well, you know, we're in war, and, you know. <laughs> okay, we're not in depression, but it depends on what part of the country you go to. It depends on what person you talk to. And beyond that, we are in, I think, many Americans believe, and again, not just liberals, we're in a, a I don't want to say spiritual crisis, but we're in, a, we're, we're in a very deep civic crisis. We're in a very deep civic crisis after seven and a half years of you know, rapacious social Darwinism and um, an administration that ironically serves its single interest groups far more far more aggressively and obsequiously and arrogantly than the Democrats ever did, than the Mondale-era Democrats ever did. We're in a a time of civic crisis and counterfeit morality, and people recognize it. So if liberals and Democrats can step forward and remember this part of liberalism, this part of the liberal tradition, this aspect of what liberalism is about, I think the country could change. Thank you very much for listening. You're listening to Michael Tomaski, editor of the American Prospect magazine. This is Zocalo. Make sure to tune in and click on Zocalo Radio in the coming weeks as we bring to the air science writer Michael Shermer, novelist Anna Monardo, singer Dwight Tribble, and public diplomacy expert Aitan Gilboa. For information on upcoming Zocalo events and to download past radio programs, visit our website, ZocaloLA.org. That's Z-O-C-A-L-O-L-A dot O-R-G. Up next, it's the audience's turn to ask questions of Michael Tomaski. Stay tuned to Zocalo.
Contribute to KPCC today in any amount, and you're automatically entered in our giveaway for a 2007 Prius, courtesy of Symes Toyota of Pasadena. Along with fuel economy and low emissions, Prius features include the smart key system, backup camera, and MP3 player. No contribution necessary to enter, but we hope you'll take advantage of this opportunity to get more mileage out of your membership when you do your part today. Don't miss out on your chance to win a new Prius. Contribute online at kpcc.org. Thanks. Hello, this is Barack Obama. The world seems to get bigger and more complicated by the day, making it more of a challenge to stay informed about events and issues that affect us all. KPCC's regional coverage, combined with national and international reporting from NPR, provides the in-depth and reliable news and information you rely on each day. We all need to do what we can to ensure public radio keeps going strong. Do your part today to support the station that keeps you connected with Southern California and the world. Contribute online at kpcc.org or call 866-888-5722. Thanks so much for your support. Welcome back to Zocalo, a cultural forum for the new L.A. In this final segment of What's Wrong with Liberalism, the audience asks questions of American Prospect magazine editor Michael Tomaski. Now that we've been entranced by the Republicans running against government for certainly the last 30 years, if it's not also time to say that the government actually has a positive role. I haven't heard a Democrat say that in anything. Angelides had the opportunity in his debate over the weekend and said nothing about that. Yeah. So I'm wondering if you think that that should be combined with not only the common good, but the only way to do the common good is through the act of a collective government. Yeah, I've often thought... I could probably be making a lot more money as a political consultant, or maybe not. I don't know. But here's one thing that I'd like to see like, a Democratic presidential candidate do. Find a reddest county in the reddest state in the country, right, in Oklahoma or Idaho or something, and find a, let's say, a lake or a river or a stream or something that, has been, that was polluted in the 1970s and that's been cleaned up. Right? They're out there. There are hundreds of them, in fact. Uh, and go there and do an event and have like a guy who has a house on the lake and his son say, this guy in 1976 couldn't swim in this lake, and now his son can. And this happened because the federal government came in here and cleaned this up. The people who live on this lake could not have pulled their tax dollars and cleaned this lake. It couldn't have happened. They don't have enough money. They could put their life savings in it, and they couldn't have cleaned the lake. No private company was going to come in here and clean this lake because that isn't what private companies do. That isn't what we expect them to do. Only the federal government and the state of Oklahoma couldn't do it, Only because they don't have the money. Only the federal government could do this. And here we are in a red state, in a very anti-government state, and people are entitled to their points of view, and you know it's a free country, and you can think whatever you want. But this was done by your tax dollars, and it's a good thing, and you're enjoying the benefits of it. That's an example of a kind of thing that I think that I, the Democrats just don't have the courage to do it. I can't tell you why. They're just they're afraid the Republicans are going to say, oh, they're going to raise your taxes to clean more lakes that don't even need to be cleaned. Why do you think people now are disillusioned with the conservative cause or movement? I'm a liberal, so I've always 
disagreed with it, but I personally know a lot of people who still support Bush, still think that they know what they're, what's best for the country. So what gives you cause to think that people are turning against it? Well, start with the poll numbers. 33% in Newsweek this week is 38% on average. Uh, that's pretty bad, and that's, that's pretty permanent. You know, it's been there. If you look at Bush's poll numbers, and everything isn't defined by poll numbers, I understand, but if you look at Bush's poll numbers from early 2004, 46, 44, 46, 47, 46, 45, November of 2004, 50, and December, back down into the 40s, and 2005, back down into the 30s. You know, I, I don't have anything original to say here beyond what's said uh, by, by liberal commentators very often, but the incompetence has been so stunning that it's gotten through to people who don't consider themselves very politically engaged. They're willing to look to the other side for some kind of alternative answer. Uh, the incompetence and corruption uh, have been, I think, quite, quite manifest and, and have really gotten through, like... I'll give an anecdote here. Uh, maybe this will help. So I'm from West Virginia. So one of my good boyhood friends, my closest friend when I was a kid growing up, owns a construction company, inherited his father's construction company, voted for Bush twice, voted also for the Democratic governor. So he's not like out here in Limbaugh territory, right? But, but you know, he's a small businessman, so he's a Bush voter. Last time I was home about three weeks ago, he said to me, I'll tell you, you know, I've never felt like this in my life. If there was some kind of demonstration down the courthouse square, I'd go. I just can't believe it. Yes, your, um, your comments seem to be in the tradition, Amitai Edzoni and the common good and the communitarian view. Do you view labor unions? I know of the past they were viewed as an overarching part of the community. And currently, do you view labor unions as part of the community? And the second part of that is that the common good implies community, and you have to get your hands around it, at least your arms around it. And the next front is really, it seems like, the globe. And it's very hard to get your arms around the globe and, and global problems. Yeah, labor unions would be integral to this, of course. It's interesting when you talk about democratic issue groups. In the old days, there really only used to be one, right? It was labor. And that made things a lot easier for Democratic politicians because they only had one group they had to be basically loyal to. Look, I want to see, you know, as much as anyone, you know, labor rebound. And I think it would be a very important priority for a different president, hopefully the next president, to change things dramatically at the NLRB and to try and raise the minimum wage and to try and pass legislation, uh, card check legislation that makes it easier to organize. I don't, on the other hand think that a liberal resurgence is dependent on a resurgence of labor. And, you know, if we think that, because historically, you know, it was a strong labor movement that basically was the uh, foundation of a strong liberalism. But I don't think it's going to be like that anymore in this economy. But that's not to say that we shouldn't all hope for labor to be stronger. Global problems, yeah, there, are, there are a lot of... Foreign policy is another area in which actually many liberal intellectuals and Democrats do have ideas. They don't get credit on cable television for having them, but they do have them. It's just that people don't notice them or pay attention to them. And a lot of people who are foreign policy intellectuals specifically have written and talked about 
the need for a, a new reinvigorated liberal internationalism that would dramatically increase foreign aid and dramatically increase you know, our hopefully benign presence around the world. There's a new book by uh, Anatole Liebman and John Holtzman. Actually, John Holtzman is from the Heritage Foundation, or he was from the Heritage Foundation. He got fired for writing this book. Anatole Levin and John Holtzman make this case uh, more persuasively than I could. So uh, that's part of the project, sure. You've talked about liberalism and conservatism. And sort of back in the background of this, this seems to be associated with Democrats and Republicans. I'm not sure that that's, that's at all true. Uh, and I have to say I agree with a great deal, but not all of what you say. Thomas Friedman has called for two new more parties. Uh, we need something wrong. Both of these are worthless. I would say that, in my opinion, uh, it's very clear that in, in November the Republicans don't deserve to win, but equally clearly the Democrats don't deserve to win. How do you feel about a, really a reconstitution of our political spectrum? Yeah, you know, it's something that has to happen organically over time as coalitions shift. I don't think Ralph Nader or Pat Buchanan or anyone else can kind of make it happen from one of the far sides. I don't really see that happening. I mean, I think that the groups and coalitions that make up the two parties are pretty solid. Uh, and there'll be shifts on the margins here and there. But it tends to be that very religious people also believe in low taxes, also believe in no abortion, also believe in building the fence. And it tends to be that people who you know, aren't that religious don't mind paying taxes, don't want the fence, and support abortion rights, and so on and so forth. They're almost organic cultural groupings, the parties now. Now, are, are the Democrats perfectly liberal? Well, no, of course not. You know, and the Republicans aren't perfectly conservative, although far more uniformly so. But, you know, I just kind of use the words interchangeably for, for the sake of ease. Hi. I have a non-political question. Do you believe, or what are your thoughts about that this is, is actually um, a psychological problem, that this country right now, I, f I feel, teaches you from day one self-interest. So that's why I totally agree with your idea, and I'm a liberal and a socialist, but I can see why other people can see that you know, can see that notion, because when you're not taught that, you know, it's, it's gibberish. First of all, what are your thoughts about that? And second of all, if you do agree, why do you think it was different in the 60s, and why was the notion of that country then was different in that aspect? Yeah, I do agree, sure. You know, part of the problem here is that, you know, it's the Democrats' fault. I mean, nobody talks to people as citizens, you know, people are talked to all the time as consumers, right? Like all the time, right? You wake up, you, wa you watch television, you see ads, you go to a store. You are talked to all the time as a consumer. You are talked to sometimes as a man, sometimes as a woman, sometimes as an African-American. But, you know, people aren't talked to as citizens. And I think that's one thing, just to segue into your second question, I mean, I, I think that's one thing that has changed a bit. From, from the 60s. I think, that, uh, I think that that kind of rhetoric and that kind of idea, and you may consider it corny now, I don't, but you know, that kind of idea of, of citizenship 
It was a very important one. And, you know, it was just more a part of American culture. It's also the case, and there are certain things that can't be changed, right? It's, you can't put this toothpaste back in the tube, but it was a more homogeneous culture, and, you know, everybody read Life magazine, and there were only three television channels, and you had to watch one of the three television channels, and everybody watched Walter Cronkite. So when Walter Cronkite said, we can't win the Vietnam War at the end of February in 1968, everybody went, oh, we can't win the Vietnam War, and that's when it turned. So, you know, now there were downsides to being a more homogeneous culture because people were pushed to the margins who, you know, shouldn't have been. But there were upsides to it as well. There was the more common bond in in some respects, uh, which didn't include everyone, but in some respects. And that's kind of gone. So it makes it, it's another thing that makes it a little harder to do the kind of politics that I'm talking about. I'm still a little confused about your point. I did read your article on the internet and I read some of your critics and None of them seem to address the relationship between liberal and Democrat, mm-hmm. Republican. You seem to be saying, without using the, the D word, that liberals are at the core of the Democratic Party, and what we're looking at is a triumph of the Democratic Party over the Republican Party. But based on everything you said about common good, the Republicans as a group tell me that they're working for the common good, that what we're doing in Iraq is for the good of the world. All the same Mm -hmm. arguments that you used about how we liberals are smart enough to see what's in your best interest and to persuade you to work for the common good because that is your best interest seems to justify the Republican Party. So are liberals really Republicans? Wow. Uh, Question went down a few paths. Um, no, I mean, you know, this rhetoric, like a lot of political rhetoric, is available to a wide range of people, right? I mean, George Bush talks a very good game about a lot of things that, you know, we winkingly, secretly think he doesn't care very much about. He talks pretty nicely about race, and he talked pretty nicely about poverty after Katrina and, and a lot of other things. I mean, you know, political rhetoric can be used. I mean, I specifically mean this kind of rhetoric and this kind of thinking to be lashed to clearly progressive policy goals. Like, for example, I think global warming. If you want to ask me, like, what's one thing that could be advanced with this kind of rhetoric, I think global warming is pretty clearly that. It's something that affects everybody. It doesn't matter whether you're rich or poor or what color you are. You know, you can't buy your way out of it. And it's something that I think a president, being the right kind of leader, and being willing to take some risks and really lead on the question, could unite the population in a, a serious push to do something about global warming? And I, I think once you do one thing and show people, again, that there's reason for them to have faith in government, then I think that opens the door to more things. So, you know, anybody can say common good. Anybody can say I'm for wiping out poverty. I mean, Grover Norquist is for wiping out poverty, right? I think he sincerely believes that the crazy things he's for will eliminate poverty. So anybody can appropriate rhetoric uh, toward any ends, but I specifically mean it to be appropriated toward liberal ends of, uh, of the sort that, you know, we used to do in this country. It's been my assessment for years, just personal, that the Democratic Party is uh, effectively incompetent in executing. When you first started your speech, uh, you made a passing reference, and it was kind of humorous to the fact that our mayor is campaigning in abstentia while there's a gubernatorial election going on. 
And as everyone in the room realizes, there's absolutely no traction whatsoever on behalf of Phil Angelides. And this state is supposed to be owned by us. That demonstrates to me a, a lack of competence on the part of our leadership. Closer to home, and something very personal to me, is the fact that the city of Los Angeles, the county of Los Angeles, is watching its medical care system implode because Martin Luther King has had its federal uh, Medicare funding yanked as a result of chronic failures going back over decades. And the failure of leadership in the Los Angeles community with respect to the health care system resides exclusively in the Board of Supervisors in the county of Los Angeles, mm -hmm. which is nothing else if not strongly democratic and extremely liberal. And so I find myself deeply disappointed and frustrated by this, encouraged by your message, but at the same time, we're sitting here in a town that we basically own, and we can't get our own political class to effectively provide resources and governmental services where they don't have any serious opposition. What yeah. can we do? And you're, you're a national opinion leader. Take this message back. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah. I covered uh, politics in New York City for many years before I moved to Washington. And uh, a lot of the same things. You know, I covered Bloomberg getting control of the Board of Education and getting to appoint a chancellor. You're going through that now, right here, uh, right now. A different dynamic kind of asserts itself is my observation on the local level. It's true that Los Angeles uh, is kind of a one-party state, just like New York City is kind of a one-party state, I mean, except for the fact that the mayor has been Republican for the last 12 years, or 14 years now or something. Uh, but, uh, and, but the fact that it was a Democratic one-party state is part of the reason that you have nothing but Republican mayors in New York City right now. Um, and one-party states, things get sclerotic. A certain clientelism develops in which, you know, people, and they're not bad people, they're good people, but they get caught up in a system in which, you know, the main thing is to perpetuate the status quo and keep things going as they are and not really to question anything or change anything. And, uh, and uh, in one-party states, ideas are seditious. And, you know, this... This happens to Democrats as well as to Republicans. I mean, I'm sure it's bad in you know Idaho or whatever uh, on the other side, and um, and you know this is what happens uh, at the local level. It seems to me, and uh, you know it takes uh, some kind of reform coalition. Uh, I'm speaking from my experience in New York here. It takes some kind of reform coalition that includes you know, uh, Republicans, and not, I don't mean like Washington Republicans, I mean like Rockefeller Republicans. It takes like Rockefeller Republicans and white liberals and a certain percentage of, of, uh, uh, of a minority group to, to start a reform movement that, that, that kicks the bums out, so to speak. Um, and it's a hard thing. It takes many, many years to happen. Um, but uh, it's what happened with uh, Fiorello LaGuardia, who lost a mayoral election before he won one. And I know that's a long time ago, but things aren't really that different. They don't really change that much. Lost a mayoral election before he won one, and the reformers had lost a couple mayoral elections running LaGuardia-like candidates before he finally won in 1933. As your first question, what competence, incompetence, yeah. 
Um, yeah, the Democrats are pretty incompetent, and you know they they have a habit of snatching defeat from the jaws of victory, and and you know they may do it again this fall. Um, I'll leave you, with, and it's related to your question, with with one interesting thought. Um, I just went to a lunch uh, that featured a guy, uh, and he may have the secret to this whole problem. So take take heart. Um, guy named Drew Weston. He's got a book coming out next year, and uh, he has this PowerPoint presentation. It's two hours. It's a little long, but uh, but it's he needs a he needs the thirty minute version. But it's really fascinating, and it's purely on the level of tactics and how Democrats talk to voters versus how Republicans talk to voters. And his message, in a nutshell, is that. Republican candidates understand that most people respond more to emotional appeals than to rational appeals, and Republican appeals are rooted in trying to make an emotional connection with people, whereas Democratic appeals, because Democrats believe that people should be reasonable and people should think, Democrats believe that People should respond to rational appeals. And, you know, I mean, it makes intuitive sense, right, when I say it. But if you watch his presentation and you see, you know, the way John Kerry answered a question in a debate versus the way George Bush answered the same question in a debate and have him break it down for you, or you see the way Gore versus Bush uh, answered questions in debate, it's so true. You know, Democrats just stand up there and say, well, my health care plan will do this, and they rattle off five numbers, and they think, well, my people should think, my goodness, that's quite a good health care plan. I think I'll vote for that man. And, <laughs> you know, that just isn't how the world works, and it isn't how the world should work. You know, why should it work that way? People, you have to engage people at, 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 you know, at a visceral level. And um, so you know, he's... He's trying to like get this message out about about you know how Democrats need to think need to understand the brain differently. Uh, he, his PowerPoint presentation even includes like maps of the human brain and what fires when you see a political commercial. Um, it's really fascinating. So maybe that problem will be solved by 2008, sir. <laughs> You've been listening to Michael Tomaski, editor of the American Prospect magazine. This is Zocalo, a cultural forum for the new L.A. Zocalo's radio broadcast is sponsored by 89.3 KPCC. Zocalo Radio is supported by a generous grant from the James Irvine Foundation and by the California Endowment. For information on upcoming Zocalo events and to download past radio programs, visit ZocaloLA.org. That's Z-O-C-A-L-O-L-A dot O-R-G. The producer for Zocalo Radio is Peter Stencil. Douglas Gary is our engineer. I'm Marcos Fromer. Thanks for listening. My name is Nelly Zapata. I've been a member of KP.